0: This Torah 101 podcast is dedicated in honor of Baruch Ben Yehuda and Laura Bat Yaakov for all that they have done for us, and especially with regards to the amazing sacrifices that they have endured to give me and my sister Jewish education. May they get a lot of nachas from us and from this podcast. And as always, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. We are in middle of our exploration of the Rambam's 13 principles of faith, and we are up to principle number 11, the concept of reward and punishment. And we are trying to approach this subject methodically, and we talked about the general idea of reward and punishment, and the basis for that in our literature. And we talked about the differences between the way the Almighty meets out reward and punishment, and the way we do it, and then Last time we had the discussion, the scary discussion about what happens after you die and the timeline of the various different junctures of judgment and the things that could happen that can befall the soul after its departure from the body. And I told you last time that's going to be a little scary. Maybe you should skip this one if you're a little bit queasy. And if you want to hear more, we'll talk more. And there was a groundswell to hear more. So I decided, we decided together, I guess, to talk more about what happens after you die. But I thought it would be prudent before we analyze in great detail all the various different ideas and concepts and venues about what happens after you die and the journey of the soul as it goes back to its roots. I thought it would be wise To talk about the soul in general. What is the soul? We talk about the soul a lot. What is it? What do we know about it? What can we discover about it? What is the anatomy of the soul? Now, this is a huge subject. And I believe in my over 1100 podcast episodes with the help of the Almighty. I don't think that I've ever talked about this subject with the depth that I hope to do it now. I believe it will require more than one episode, maybe even 10, I don't know, how to do it properly. And just yesterday, I was reading the book, Derech Hashem, The Way of God, one of the best single volumes on Jewish philosophy, and I was reading the chapter about the soul. And someone came over to me, and said, why are you complicating things? Why do you need to study so much about the soul and its origin and its backstory and its destiny and what happens to it? What's it made of? What's it composed of? Don't you know that I could simply resolve all of your philosophical dilemmas with one sentence? There is a creator and he wants us to do stuff for him. I'll simplify it. Don't complicate things. And then he challenged me. says, ask me any question. And I'll show you how easy it is to answer it. So I just pointed to one sentence in this book where it says that sometimes you can add on to the soul. The soul can temporarily be added on to. What does that mean? And of course, it's a really hard question. But I think, just thinking over this conversation, I think he actually had a point. You can legitimately say, I don't need to ask all these philosophical, theological, eschatological questions. I don't need to know about the nature of the soul. All I need to know is to believe in God, to obey his word, and that's it. I think that there's a legitimate standpoint to say, let's not get too complicated into the subjects of Jewish philosophy, simplify matters, and that's it. I don't want to disregard that opinion. In fact, the Talmud says that anyone does a mitzvah, whether or not they're aware of what's actually happening, whether or not they're even aware of the existence of their soul, you listen to the Almighty, you will get ample reward for your mitzvah. But in our pursuit of Torah 101, we're trying to understand things as fundamentally as we possibly can. If it's not for you, that's okay. But I want to ponder this subject and probe it as best as we possibly can. And I think this is the theme of our series, the 30 principles of faith to understand things just as go as deep as we can and as broad as we can on every one of these critical subjects of Jewish philosophy. But I think we finally arrived at the most ambitious question yet. And that is, what is a soul? Now, as you know, I recently published a book called Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, available in select Jewish bookstores. Just Google Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp book, and the book is really about the soul. In fact, the, the subject or the, I guess, the byline, there's the title and the subtitle. The subtitle of the book is How Torah and Mitzvos Prepare the Soul for Eternity. The objective of the book is to understand the relationship between Torah and mitzvahs and the soul. We have a soul. The soul is going to endure after our life over here, and our choices and our decisions and our deeds and our behavior and our priorities and values that we live with over here in this critical world, when our soul is temporarily and quite unnaturally bound to a body, those decisions, those choices are going to affect the soul for eternity. And the Almighty tells us here. Here's the Torah, and the Torah is the manual to make sure that your soul is in great shape once it is divested of its body host and it goes on to live in eternity. You want that soul, you want to invest in that future self. Don't just live life for the temporary life, live life and invest in your permanent self. That's what the Torah mitzvahs are all about. So my book, Upon a Ten-String Tarp, is all about that the soul, the threats that the soul faces, and how Torah mitzvahs are the solution, and how you know those two interface and relate with each other. The one thing I shied away from is the thing I'm trying to cover today, and that is the essential nature of the soul, the components of the soul. What's it made out of? Those are, of course, very weighted questions and something we will try to unpack right now. And of course, we should start with the basics. You know, always try to start with the basics and try to build upon that. And I started, I thought I started from the basics. And now I'm thinking that maybe we picked the most difficult place to start, but that's Okay. Eventually, we get to everything, I hope. The first we hear of the soul, of course, is in Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 7. And God formed man, dust from the earth. And he blew into his nostrils the soul, the neshama, the soul of life. And man became lenefesh chaya, to a living soul. This is obviously a very powerful, important, critical verse here. It raises all sorts of questions. What is this formation of man? What does it mean man is made from dust of the earth? What does it mean to blow life into his nostrils? You'll notice also that there are two words here that seem to be defined or translated as a soul. There is Vayipach Ba'abaf Nishmas chayim, the soul of life. And man became a living being, but that does not use the word neshama, nishmas. It uses the word nefesh. So, what is a neshama? What is a nefesh? What is actually happening here, over here? So, of course, whenever we have a problematic verse or a verse that raises questions, the first place we look at is the commentary of Rashi. And Rashi tells us the most basic idea we need to know about the soul. This verse is describing the formation, the creation of man, and it's happening on two different, completely, diametrically, polar opposite levels. God made man from the lowlies and from the lofties. God made man from the tahtonim from the lowest elements, and from the elyonim, from the highest elements. Goof, the body, is from the dust of the earth, the lowest possible thing we could think of. It's below us. We tread upon it. And that is where the body comes from. And where does the soul come from? The highest thing we could imagine. Almost as if God blew into the nostrils of man, the soul of life. That is the closest thing we can even fathom to God. And that's the soul. And that's this crazy thing called the human. It's this hybrid of... On one hand, the lowliest thing, dust of the earth. And the other half is the loftiest thing we can fathom, the lofty holy soul that God blew into man's nostrils. And through this, man became a living soul, a nefesh chaya. What does that mean? And Rashi asks a very powerful question. If you look at chapter 1 of Genesis, the animals and the beasts are also called a nefesh chaya. Yet they don't have any neshama, any higher soul blown into their nostrils. So what is special about the human? Says Rashi, man is the most alive of all the creatures because man has knowledge and and man has speech. Yes, animals, they have a soul too. But man has more. Man has more soul, more life, because man has knowledge and speech. Now, the commentaries in Rashi say something really interesting. This is going to be almost like the way we're going to enter this very vast, complex, labyrinthinely complex subject. Animals have a nefesh, animals have a soul, a soul that gives life, an animating soul. But humans have on top of that, we have knowledge and speech. These refer to higher levels of soul. If the animals have a nefesh, humans have a nefesh as well. So humans have on top of that a ruach, which is called a spirit, and an neshama, which is a higher level soul, and that corresponds to knowledge and speech. The fact that we can speak is because we have not just an ephesh like the other animals, we also have a ruach, a spirit, and that gives us the capacity to speech, to verbal speech. And we also have the capacity of knowledge... From our neshama, again, things that the animals and the beasts do not have. And the commentaries point out that that means that there's at least three levels of the human soul, the lowest level, the nefesh, that is the same thing that the animals have. And then there's the ruach, the spirit, and that the animals don't have, and then there's the neshama, again, a higher level the animals don't have, and that gives man the capacity of knowledge. And the commentaries point out that according to the Midrash, there are actually two higher levels that aren't even worthy to be mentioned because it's so rare to find someone that actually can access and have a capacity in those levels. So I feel like we started off with the first instance where the soul appears in our literature, chapter 2 of Genesis, and right away we're thrown into the very deep end, where we're talking about the difference between the human soul and the animal soul. And that's just Rashi. You look at the Ramban. This is the Ramban in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 20. He says something very, very deep, profound, almost mystifyingly so. The verse is talking about the creation of the birds and the fish. And the Rabban says that the fish, their body and their soul both come from the water. Meaning the body and the soul of an animal come from the same source. However, man, the body and the soul come from opposite sources. The body comes from the dust and the soul comes from the breath of life infused into man by God. That's in chapter 1, verse 20. In chapter 2, verse 7, the Ramban reinforces this point. So first of all, he tells us that if you look at chapter 2, verse 7, it uses the full name of God, Hashem Elohim, the full name of God. And that's going to hint, says the Ramban, about the essence and the degree and the secret of the soul. Because the soul does not emanate from something that God created. Rather, it emanates from God himself. So we're seeing from the very beginning here that these are quite weighty topics and it's important for us to try to really slowly and carefully approach it and see what we can learn. There's almost no easy way into this very weighty and lofty subject. What I thought we should do is to go through the aforementioned chapter of Derech Hashem, the way of God, written by Lutzato, widely acknowledged to, to being one of the best books of Jewish philosophy. In section three of the book, in the first chapter, has a chapter about the soul. And he puts together a lot of these ideas we've seen already, about the animal soul and the human soul and different parts of the soul, and that will help, I think, round out for us an understanding of the anatomy of the soul that we can then use as a springboard to understanding the nature of the soul and the challenges facing the soul and the relationship between the soul and the body and eventually, of course, the relationship of the soul to mitzvos and to Torah and eventually, of course, the soul and what happens to it in the afterlife. So the Ramchal Lutzato begins the third section of, of the book Derech Hashem, the way of God, by talking about the soul, and he starts off like this. In man, there is something that is not found in any other creation. There's a quality that we have that no other creations have. Man is completely unique in this one way. And that is that man is a combination. There is two different Opposite parts that make up man. Man is comprised of a soul and a body, two opposites, and that is not found anywhere else, not in the angels above us, not all the spirits above us, not in all the animals below us, not anywhere in the entire universe, or really, as we would say, more about this in a bit, all the universes, there is no such Parallel, there's no corollary. There's no other example of this phenomenon of an entity comprised of such opposites. And then he tells us that this soul, when we talk about the soul, we have to differentiate between the animal soul and the human soul. There's a soul that animals have. Anything that has blood, has an animal soul. That animal soul is not really unique to a human. Animals have an animal soul as well. We have a human soul on top of our animal soul. So he tells us that there are characteristics of the animal soul. In the animal soul, you'll find feelings. Feelings. So if a chimpanzee has feelings, or a cow has feelings, or a lion has feelings, and a human has feelings, that's not a problem because those are all characteristics of the animal soul. Natural intelligence, that is a feature of the animal soul. The ability to influence and to oversee the operation of the body, that is a characteristic of the animal soul the ability to have senses that is a characteristic of the animal soul we see that things are either alive or dead they're never like partially alive you shoot an animal even if you shoot the animal in its head only the ledge stop working as well there's some kind of general overseer of the whole system And once that is removed, everything dies. We call that the animal soul. There's like a switch. If the animal soul is in, the animal is alive in its entirety. If that thing is out, the animal is dead in its entirety. That's because there's something called the animal soul. And if you have it, you're alive. You're animated. Otherwise, you are dead. And again, humans have it as well. And the nature of every animal is determined by its particular kind of animal soul. And therefore, you have animals that are more intelligent and animals that have great memories and powerful senses. And many of these animals, by the way, on the animal soul level are much more capable than us. Perhaps you've seen the video of the chimpanzee remembering the number 1 through 10 that blink very fast on a screen. We know that, you know, the shark could smell for miles and miles and miles, and uh, certain animals remember things forever, never forget anything. That's because their particular animal soul is endowed with certain natural abilities and talents that may even exceed ours. The only reason why we lord over them is because we have the human soul on top of our animal soul. But in the human animal soul, we have, the, the Ramchal tells us, imagination, Memory, intelligence, and will. So it's the beginning of this chapter. He says, when we talk about the soul, it's very important to differentiate between the animal soul, that level of soul, of spark of life, all the animals have as well, and that doesn't differentiate us from the animals. In fact, you can make the argument that we're actually on the animal soul level much less talented than the animals, because, you know, there are skills and abilities that they have that greatly exceed what we have. And then he tells us, but besides for that, besides for the animal soul within man, there is also a lofty soul. There's also a distinctly holy and spiritual soul. That's the human soul. And the objective of this human soul of this elevated soul is to connect man to the upper spheres. And the reason why the entire universe, we believe, hinges upon man, meaning, if we do a mitzvah, it affects not only us and our environment, it also affects the entire ecosystem of the heavens. The heavens all depend, we are told, upon the deeds and the mitzvos of humans. Why? Because we are connected to the heavens in a way that no other animals are because we have a human soul that's rooted in the highest spheres. And therefore, our deeds are going to impact and move the needle of the heavenly spheres above. Moreover, tells us Ramchal, Through that higher soul is the concatenation of divine vitality. What does that mean? Everything must rely on a connection to God. You start the basics of Jewish philosophy and theology, and that is there's only one source of life, there's only one power. And that is God. There's only one true existence, independent existence, and that is God. Everything else is dependent upon God. Only God is independent. Everything else is dependent upon God. And therefore, everything must have some sort of connection with the Almighty in order to exist. The way the Ram starts off. If you remove God from the picture, everything else ceases to exist. If you remove everything else from the picture, God is undiminished. Only God is independent. Everything else is dependent upon God for vitality, for life, for continuity. But how is this table and this glorious microphone and the clouds, and the humans, and the cats, and the trees, how are they connected to God? This is what he's saying over here. Everything must be connected to God in some way, but not everything has the same degree of connection. To the degree of something's holiness and spirituality, that is a reflection of the closeness of its relationship with the Almighty. Meaning, if you ask someone which is an angel, angel is very holy, very lofty. What that means is that it has a more direct flow of vitality from God than the the animals. And the way this works, this is the common analogy, if you have a filter... And you want to drop light through a filter. So you put the light, it goes through the filter, and there's light that comes on the other side, but the light that comes out of the other side is not quite as powerful as the light that precedes the filter. So you have a a very strong strobe light, and it goes through a filter, and now the light is slightly diminished. And now you put on a second filter, and now the light is even more diminished. What if you put a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million filters upon that light? You may still have light emanating through the side, but it'll be much fainter. It's the same source of light, but it's not quite as powerful. The Almighty is the only source of light and vitality. And it flows to all things, but not with the same rate not with the same intensity the human soul is much higher on this totem pole and the divine vitality that it gets and that gets passed through it it happens on this level where it goes first to the higher parts of the human soul and eventually it filters down to the animal soul and from there to the body and from there to the animals, but more about that in a little bit. Again, very advanced ideas here about how the, so to speak, vertical relationship that we have in you know, our body, with the animal soul, with the human soul, that goes up very high on this totem pole, this hierarchy, and therefore, there's a closer connection to God from those sources, Ramchal continues and tells us that there is an ideal relationship between the human soul and the animal soul. Ideally, the management goes top down. Meaning that ideally the human soul, which is the spiritual soul, should be in charge and should be guiding and should be directing the animal soul and eventually the body had to behave. The way the Talmud describes this, the human soul is seeing, it sees, but it's crippled. The body is blind, but it can walk. The human soul can see what the goals of life ought to be, but it is lame, it's crippled, it cannot execute upon those desires, upon that agenda. The body's blind, it has no idea what it's doing in life, but it could walk, it could implement. In the ideal world, the higher soul The seeing soul will direct the animal soul and the body to execute and implement its agenda. It can't do it himself. A soul can't do a mitzvah. A soul needs to kind of direct and guide the body, which is the blind and the non-crippled half of this duo. The soul must guide the body to implement and execute its agenda. Then he tells us that the soul is connected to the lower soul and the lower soul is connected to the body via the blood. Now, I want to just give a little crude analogy to explain this idea. You know, if you think about the body, what's the body? The body is not just like a jigsaw puzzle of different limbs. And that is, oh, you have an arm, a right arm, and then there's a left arm, and there's a right leg, and a left leg. It's all interconnected. There's a cohesive system here. It's one, one cohesive ecosystem. Everything is interdependent and interrelated. But what happens, again, this is a crude analogy. What happens if you cut off the leg? Will the arm still work? It will, right? The brain will still work, the heart will still work. What happens if you cut off the head? And again, I'm not advising this. What happens if you cut off the head? The lead stops working. So understand if this is one cohesive ecosystem, why, when you cut off the head, again, not advising this, this is just an analogy, a crude analogy. Why, when you cut off the head, does the lead stop working? But when you cut off the leg, the head does not stop working. The answer is there's a certain hierarchy. The brain, so to speak, is in charge of determining the vitality and the life and the direction of the leg. So if you remove that part, everything that's below it ceases to work as well. Similarly, if you remove the human soul, everything that's below that, the animal soul, how it connects to the body via the blood, more about that in a little bit, the body itself, it all stops working because it's lower down on the hierarchy. Whereas if you remove the body, the soul endures because the soul can exist absent a body, but not vice versa. And again, I'm acknowledging these are very lofty ideas and how this all works and how this all connects with each other it's, uh, it's very mysterious, but that's what we chose. So let's try to forge ahead. He tells us that we have the, the higher soul and the lower animal soul, and then we have the body, and it connects the glue, connecting the lower animal soul with the body is the blood. In fact, the Torah tells us that we're not allowed to eat the blood. Kosher animal, you eat the animal, but not the blood, because the blood is the soul. What does that mean? That's what he's referring to over here. The blood is the most ethereal part of the body, and it is the glue that connects to the animal's soul, and you don't want to eat the animal soul of a cow, because then you are absorbing some of the characteristics of the cow. You don't want to be a bovine. Now, what does it mean that the blood is the glue? So first of all, like I mentioned earlier, every animal that has an animal soul has to have blood. And Rabbi Arya Kaplan, who wrote this translation of the way of God that we're using, he has a very interesting footnote about this little piece in, in Ramchal about the blood. So he tells us that according to the Talmud and the other Jewish sources, there is a measurement called a revius, which is about three ounces. The three ounces of blood, that is sufficient blood for life. Now, why this amount? Either because that's the minimum amount of blood needed for life. Maybe that's the amount of blood that a person is born with. Or maybe that's the amount of blood in the heart. But then he says something really fascinating. Again, these are one of the many things that I did not know going into this research. He quotes the Arizal, the greatest of the Kabbalists. And he says that the blood being referred to The blood of life, the blood that connects the body, so to speak, of an animal or a person to the animal soul that a person or an animal both have. It's not referring to the blood the way we think of it. Rather, it is the blood of the brain. The blood of the brain. Specifically, the nerves. And he explains, the only thing that, this is a direct quote from the footnote over here. The only thing that flows through the nerves, however, is the neural impulses. And these neural impulses are considered the highest fraction of the, quote-unquote, blood. And this is the life of the brain mentioned earlier in the Arizal. Since all mental activity depends on our neurological impulses, According to this, the animal soul, which is the information in man's brain as well as his ability to process it, would depend on this blood, so to speak, namely the neurological processes. This is the meaning of the statement, the soul is in the blood. So again, very advanced stuff over here, but we're told again that the body is connected to the animal soul, at least according to this interpretation of the Arizal, via the nerves and whatever fluid exists over the air, the very ethereal blood in the brain. Again, really fascinating, although quite mystifying stuff. Now, Ramkha continues and tells us that due to the fact that our human soul, which again is rooted very, very high up, is very close to God, in this system of flow of vitality, our human soul is severely curtailed and hindered. There are severe limitations imposed upon it because of its association with the body. So our human soul really is higher, loftier than an angel. But because it's bound together to the animal soul and to the body of a human, as a result of that, so long as the soul is associated with these very lowly sources, it is withheld from connecting with the higher spiritual entities. You think of an angel, the angel should be able to hang out with other angels. Well, if our human soul is an angel, why can't it hang out with other angels? The answer is because it's also connected with the body. And that drags it down and that withholds from it the ability to interact with other entities that it, at least naturally or in isolation, should be able to relate and interact with. The soul is also variable, meaning the soul's always changing. And the state of the soul is determined by the behavior of the body. And this is again the you know the the very difficult challenge of the soul. Imagine you could see you're just a cripple. This is the analogy of the Talmud. You know, you see danger everywhere. But the person that you're bound together with is blind and they're schlepping you against your will. And you're freaking out because there's danger here, there's danger there, there's opportunity there. But this person was blind that I'm bound to is stumbling into every danger and every obstacle and avoiding all the reward, all the good things, all the opportunity. And there's nothing, or there's almost nothing, that the soul can do to impose its will upon the body. And that's the death-free will, where a person can exist in both of these spheres And a person has to choose which one to favor, which one to veer towards. Are you going to listen to your seeing but crippled soul? Or are you going to listen to your blind but capable body? And the soul and its destiny is going to be determined by the choices that the human makes. The degree of connection the soul has with the light of God, the degree of status that the soul is going to earn in the afterlife is going to be determined by the choices that the soul and the body, when fused together in divine mandate, make over the course of its lifetime. Will it become close to God? Will it drag the body and elevate the body with it? Or will it be distanced from God? And again, ideally, it's the higher soul should make the choices, but that's the ideal sense, and that is the struggle and the challenge. And then he tells us that the soul, we talk of the soul, this is something we've already seen a little bit earlier. We talk of the soul as one entity, but the truth is there's many different levels and many different parts. And you can think of it, says Ramchal, as many different souls linked together in a chain. If you have a chain, the chain can have, I don't know, 10, 20, 100 links in it. It's one chain, but it's many links. So too, it's one soul, one human soul, comprised of many links, different little subsouls we can call them, that are all connected like links in a chain. And then he tells us, because this is one chain with many links, parts of it can temporarily leave, you'll still have a chain. You could also add onto the chain. That's all possible. That's the dynamism of the soul. He's going to tell us a little bit later on, when you dream... It may be experiences that the parts of your soul that remove themselves temporarily from this chain when you are sleeping, they may pick up information, true or otherwise, in their excursions while they are taking a break from your chain. Very advanced stuff here. And he points out the body is totally oblivious of what is happening to the soul. The body is not aware at all of all that is occurring here to the soul and the links in the chain. If you pull off one of the links in the chain, the body has, there's no appreciable, detectable difference in the body. Rather, he tells us, the function of the higher souls is man's true essence, meaning true, very high, lofty spiritual essence, and it's relationship with the higher spheres as well. So he quotes he quotes a teaching of the Talmud. And this is how you understand this teaching, even though, again, it's still very mystifying. The Talmud tells us that when Shabbos starts, you get an extra soul. And then when Shabbos leaves, you lose that said extra soul. Neshama yisera, extra soul you get on Shabbos. The human body is not able to perceive that. Cause you can add links to the chain, but our senses are not connected to our, to our soul. Unless, of course, we develop those senses. Ah, that's the, the next level. You can develop senses to pick up, to experience, to feel what your soul is actually going through. But by default, for sure, the human senses are not connected at all to the level of the soul. So if your soul is in agony, you have no idea. If your soul is delighted, you may not feel anything. If parts of your soul just take a break, unleak themselves from this chain and don't experience things, unless that is transmitted down to the point where you can experience it in your imagination, in your senses, you can visualize it in your mind, which may or may not happen, you have no idea of what your soul is actually doing. The great sages of yore, when they would we'll go to sleep, that parts of their soul would go up to heaven and would study in the academy of Rabbi Akiva in heaven and the academy of Rabbi Yishmael and the academy of Rabbi Meir and the academy of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And they would come back to the body and they would remember it. Because the connection between these links in the chain and the person's elevation of self to be able to become more sensitive to the soul they've developed themselves to such a degree that they actually remembered what they experienced. This may be, in fact, a version of prophecy. Prophecy is what your soul attains, and you know because your life and your self and your identity has been elevated to the degree that what your soul knows, you know. For most of us, we have no idea what's going on with the soul, what it knows. It just, you know, it, the transmission does not go all the way down to our consciousness. And then he tells us, according to Jewish sources, there are five general parts of the soul. We mentioned them earlier, the nefesh. The level up is the ruach. The level up is the neshama. And then even a higher level, the level of the chaya and the level of the yechida. And again, recall earlier, when we spoke about in Rashi who says that the human has on top of the animal speech and knowledge that referred, we were told, to the Ruach and, the, and to the Neshama. But those people don't have a connection with the Chayin Yichida, and therefore it's not important to mention it. And the commentaries tell us that only the lower three, namely the Nefesh, the Ruach and the Neshama, have any connection to the body the two highest ones, the Chaya and the Yechida, have absolutely no connection with the body. And therefore, someone who has any association with their Chaya and Yechida, we would call that person already a prophet. They've already transcended from their body and they've become something like an angel or maybe something even higher than an angel. But listen to this. I'm going to tell you a cool secret only between us. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 10a, that David had five verses that started off, bar chi es Hashem, let my nefesh, let my soul praise God. Why did David compose five songs, five praises, that his soul should praise God. Says the Talmud, because the only thing that can praise God is the human soul. And then the Talmud explains. The human soul is so similar to God. And it's similar to God in five different ways. And therefore, it's appropriate for the human soul to come and praise God. Explains the Talmud. Just as the Almighty fills up the entire world, so too the soul fills up the entire body. Similarity number one. Just as the Almighty sees but is unseen, so too the soul sees but is unseen. Similarity number two. Just as the Almighty provides nourishment for the entire world, so too the soul provides nourishment for the entire body. Similarity number three. Similarity number four, just as the mighty is pure, the soul is pure, and finally, just as the Almighty sits, so to speak, in the inner sanctums, so too the soul sits in the inner sanctums. And therefore it's appropriate. Whoever has these five qualities, these five characteristics, should come and praise he, capitalized, God, who has these same five characteristics. What does this mean? I feel like we're so deep into this already now. It's beyond the point of no return. We've burned the boats. We've burned the bridges. We've crossed the Rubicon. We're in this together. It's too late. We can't undo this. As they just tell us, that these five classifications of the soul and how it compares to God are corresponding to the five Parts of the soul, or the five souls, subsouls linked together in a single chain. When it says the Almighty fills the entire world, similarly, the soul fills the entire body, there's a reference to the nefesh, the lowest level of the soul. When it says that the Almighty nourishes the entire world, and so too the soul nourishes the entire body, that's a reference to the spirit, to the ruach. When it says the Almighty sees but is unseen, and the soul likewise sees but is unseen, that's a reference to the Neshama. Neshama sees everything, but it is unrevealed. When it says the Almighty is pure, so too the soul is pure, that is a reference to the Chaya. And finally, the Almighty and the soul sit in the inner sanctums. that is a reference to the Yechidah. That's the just the the deepest and the highest and the most sublime, the holy of holies, the most pure of all. On that level, the soul is completely connected to the Almighty. There's absolutely no separation between the two. In fact, the sages tell us that on the level of Yechida, there is no free will. Typically, humans have free will. We could choose this path, we could choose that path, even on the level of the Chaya, the fourth of five levels, there is still the capacity to have free will. Whereas on the level of Yichida, on that highest level, there is such a bond between the soul, between man and God, on that level, free will is not possible. Now, again, back to Arya Kaplan here. In the footnote, he tells us that according to the Kabbalists, there are four different universes. We believe in the multiverse. Four different universes. The lowest level is what's called Asiya. And that relates to the Nefesh. The next higher level is Yitzira, and that relates to the Ruach. The next higher level is the Bria, and that relates to the Neshama. And the highest level of all these universes is what's called Atzilus, and that relates to the Chaya. But the Yechida cannot be limited to any one of these universes. It is something even higher than these four universes. He has a term for it, which I don't know what that even means, but the way he describes it, I'll read you a quote here. The reason why it's called Chaya, again, this is level four, is because it is associated with Atzilus, which is the source and life of all existence. It is sometimes also referred to as the soul of the soul or the root of the soul. But Yechida is above. It exists on a level above Atzilus where everything is an absolute unity known to Kabbalists as Adam Kadmon. What that means, I don't know. But again, that's basically the theme of what we're talking about today. All these very advanced themes that we're trying to understand as best we can as our introduction to our study of the soul and understanding how it relates to reward and punishment. Finally, the chapter ends with the experiences that the soul has notwithstanding its association with the body. And he's speaking specifically about dreams. When someone goes to sleep, part of their human soul unbonds itself from the body, from the link of chains. And it can exist in a way, in a level that's natural to it. And when we dream, says Ramchal, Sometimes we're just reliving in our imagination what happened during the day. Sometimes it's a reflection of the substances and the fumes of our body going into our brain. And sometimes it can be the transmission of what our higher levels of souls have experienced in the upper spheres. That were transmitted down to us here below to our consciousness. Now, he points out even if you know for sure that what you are dreaming about comes from what your soul transmitted to your imagination, to your consciousness, that does not necessarily mean that it is true and accurate. Your soul, this sounds very, be very, very surprising, your soul can ascend to heaven and glean false information. Why? Because there's like the good angels and there's like the demons, which are, again, angelic figures, but ones that are part of the balance, so to speak, that exists in the entire universe to create this free will paradigm. And it's possible that you're so up to heaven, it picked up information that's false. But it is information from the heavenly sphere, it transmitted it down to you, and now you have information coming from heaven that's actually not true which is just a crazy idea. And he says, this is all different from prophecy. This is not actual prophecy. Prophecy is a different subject. These are the experiences of dreams that can be total nonsense in a variety of ways. It could be total nonsense because it's just your imagination running amok. It can be total nonsense because it's the fumes coming up from your body into your brain. It could be totally nonsense because it's what your soul experienced from the false sources in heaven. And it can actually be true it could be like a little sparklet of prophecy in the event that your soul went up to heaven, picked up something accurate for whatever reason. Of course, there'll be reasons why that will be transmitted. And he transmitted it down to your body, to your imagination, to your animal soul. And you actually have a little preview of future events of future history in a way not dissimilar to prophecy. Again, very lofty ideas here. We do know, and this is something that even the secular science confirms, that when you go to sleep with a problem, you can wake up in the morning with a solution. The parts of your brain that are operating without your conscious input, it can actually resolve and view themes from different angels, that can bring about an answer. If you do yeshiva properly, this will happen all the time. The yeshiva schedule is all about studying the most advanced parts of Talmud with the commentaries and having big problems and filling your brain with that. And every night you go to sleep with a problem and every morning you wake up with a solution. The great sages awake wake up in the middle of the night multiple times to write down, to jot down their notes that the brain was studying when it was, when your soul, so to speak, was going on a little saunter, was sauntering up in the heavenly spheres and it was picking up solutions, resolutions to your problems. I had another idea here. You know, we have this whole description of this really lofty spiritual soul, the breath of God, so to speak. What does that even mean? So advanced, so holy, and it's bound together to your body, lowest of the low. How does the soul endure? So the word that I came up with this is spiritual dialysis. Your soul, it's so unnatural for your soul to be here, to be bound with the body and deal with all the mishagas of the body. It has to be cleansed of that noxious influence because the soul is not supposed to experience that. And that's why you have to go to sleep. You have to cleanse it out. The Talmud tells us that you cannot go three days without sleep because then you will die. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean literally, Kent, if you, if you don't sleep for three days, you, your body will die? I don't think that's actually true because there have been people who have done more than three days. I think the Navy SEALs, they make them go for a long time without sleeping to test their endurance, to see if they make up the, the quality of fighter needed to be part of the Navy SEALs. I suspect that what this is actually saying is that your soul needs a periodic refresh. Because again, it's even if you're very holy, you still have a body and your body is going to be giving off, we could call them little fumes that are very noxious and harmful to the soul. And then you go to sleep and those parts of the soul unbind themselves from the chain. They go up to heaven and they're cleansed and therefore they can be alive. Maybe that's part of what's happening at night, or whenever you sleep. When you sleep, parts of your soul are going for a cleansing. But again, it is a portal to very advanced experiences of your soul. You may not be aware of it. That's the whole theme here. We have this hidden part of ourselves, seen but is seeing but is unseen. We're not aware of it. We don't see it. But it's operating and it's actually more alive than our body. It's just crippled. The Arizal, he was once sleeping and he was murmuring, murmuring in his sleep. And Rabbi Chaim Vital, his confidant, his student, his protege, started leaning in to hear what the great sage, what the great Kabbalist was murmuring in his sleep. And Ariza woke up. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to wake you up. I just wanted to hear what you were saying. What kind of Torah were you saying? So he responded, he says, I was being taught in the heavenly sphere something about the episode of Bilam, But if I wanted to tell you all the experiences that I was able to experience in heaven, I would need to speak for 80 years straight without stopping. And then it would still not be complete, my transmission of what I experienced. The soul is is almost limitless. The soul is the closest thing we're talking more about this, of course, in in future episodes. The soul is the thing that's most comparable to God. It is, of course, a creation of God, which is the pet peeve we have to avoid. It's not a part of God. God doesn't have any parts. It is a creation of God, but it is one of the highest creations of God. There's no buffer. There's no filters between God and the soul at least on the highest level. And therefore, it has more capacity for holiness than almost anything else in the world, or maybe anything else in the world. It's like the Torah. The Torah is the unbridled, unalloyed, unlimited, unhindered will of God. It's the closest thing to being infinite. The soul is likewise one of the closest things to being infinite, in the world. And therefore, the capacity of that soul is much more unlimited than what we'd even fathom. And therefore, in one dream, you can experience something that would take you 80 years in this world with our rigid limitations. It would take you at least 80 years to try to convey if you were speaking nonstop. Thus is the power of the soul. It's constricted into this tiny little world. In our lifetime, that causes it all kinds of problems, but that is the raw power of our soul and its high levels. So did we answer our question, what is the soul? I feel like we learned a lot. We learned about the soul, its makeup, its components, its anatomy. There's still a lot more to discuss, but we've seen a lot. We've seen, of course, the basic idea that man is a hybrid. There's the body from the earth, the soul from the heavens. Man can speak. Man has knowledge. The Rabban tells us that the soul does not come from the elements. Unlike the fish, the body of the fish, the soul of the fish, the body of the animal, the soul of the animal comes from the same source. The soul comes from the heaven above. And we read through this amazing chapter. In Derech Hashem, he talks about the difference in the animal soul and the human soul and the string of souls And how the soul connects man to the upper spheres. And it is the link through which the vitality flows from heaven on high. And we learn about how the deeds, the choices, the behavior of man determines the fate of the soul. And of course, that has a ripple, cascading ripple effect upon the heavenly spheres. The soul sees, but is crippled, and our ultimate state for eternity is going to be determined by the state of our soul. Think of this as introduction. There is still so much to cover. You know, the backstory, the history of the soul, the destiny of the soul, the challenge of the soul, where the soul was prior to coming here, where the soul goes after it leaves. The soul of Adam is a very important question that we hopefully will ponder. The relationship and the mirror images of, of the body and the soul, how the garment, namely the body, is a reflection and a parallel and a mirror to the soul, soul and mitzvos, soul and Torah. And again, as I mentioned earlier, my biggest pet peeve, the misattribution of the soul's nature, but of course, the main subject that we're trying to figure out is the soul and reward and punishment. There's still a lot more to cover. I'm looking forward to doing that. In our upcoming series and episodes, please doubt with helping help of the Almighty. Until then, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.